Hey, if you want to go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, super glad that you're here this morning. Um, my name is also Matt, for those of you I haven't met before. And uh, the amazing thing about today is that we are in part three of the Matthew series. And uh, the teaching today is from Matthew chapter 9. And it's all about the calling of Matthew. And so when we were planning out the teachings, I was like, I want that one. Just so I can make all of the Matt jokes and just combine them all into one day. <laughs> and then you guys can just be free of them for the rest of our time through the Gospel of Matthew. So... Uh, if you just laugh like that, that makes me feel really good when I make the jokes. Um, we are, like I said, in a series through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, if you want to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 9, we will pick up in verse 9. So if you have a Bible or an app or something, uh, we want you to follow along. Uh, the, the scriptures are something that we value as a community, and we, we know that they shape us as a group, but they also shape us as individuals. I didn't wait for you like you told me to. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning in the middle of a world that seems to be filled with strife and fear and anger and frustration and uh, death and dying. And we read passages like we read earlier about the promise of a future king who will come and set the world rights. And as we read in Matthew, we see that king at work in ancient Israel. And in this season of Advent, we remember how you, God, came to be among us, and we look forward to the day when you will come again. And so for people affected by warfare and uh, violence in the world, for people affected by wildfires, for uh, the people in this room who just deal with the ins and outs of everyday life. God, I pray that you would come to us, that you would meet with us, that you would heal us, that you would give us peace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick up in Matthew 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, if you remember from last week, uh, Jesus was teaching in a house and he had healed a paralyzed man. And so Jesus is leaving from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is a short passage this morning, but I think there is a ton of depth for us to get out of this little vignette about Matthew and uh, him writing about his experience in first meeting Jesus and following after him. 
And over the last two weeks, I've had the, the opportunity to study through this, and I've actually learned a ton, so I'm hopeful that I can share some of that with you this morning. A lot of it's kind of like cultural, historical background, so if you like that stuff, this first 15 minutes or 10 minutes or so will be like really enjoyable. And if, you're, if that bores you, then I, you, I, I don't know. You're going to have to sit through it. Um, so Matthew is a Jewish guy, and uh, in Mark and Luke, his name is recorded as Levi, uh, but don't let that confuse you because there's actually, it's pretty common in first century Israel for uh, the first century Jews to have more than one name. Think of Simon, who actually has three, Simon, Peter, and Cephas. And then you have John Mark, or you have Barnabas, who also gets called Joseph, or you think of Saul and Paul. It's actually fairly common for people to have more than one name. And Matthew is writing here, and he talks about how he was sitting in a tax collector's booth. So Matthew was a tax collector. And if you've read through the Gospels before, uh, you will know that tax collectors were not exactly well-liked in the first century. I mean, they're not exactly well-liked today either, but they were really, really not liked in the first century. I'm sorry if anyone is, like, works for the IRS or is an auditor or something. I like you. <laughs> but first century tax collectors were not well-liked. Um, there's even this phrase that appears throughout the Gospels and in, in other writings as tax collectors and sinners, as if this phrase belongs together. So I imagine every time that Jesus uses that phrase, uh, Matthew records that Jesus uses this phrase, Matthew is actually recalling like his own, what he came out of. See, a tax collector um, at, in a booth would have been in the middle of a road, or he might have been right along the Sea of Galilee. And what a tax collector would do in this, this toll booth, so to speak, was he would charge people moving their goods to market. So if they were using the road, well, you had to pay to use the road in order to move your goods to the market. Or if, you, if he was maybe by the Sea of Galilee, he would be charging people to use the market in order to sell their stuff. And the way that you became a tax collector in the first century was you would bid for a contract from the local government. So say, I'm Matthew, going to... Uh, bid for a contract, and I say, you know what, uh, I will get you, local government, $100 a day. And they say, oh, that sounds pretty good. Like, maybe, maybe we'll give you the contract. And there's this other guy named Matthew. It's just there's lots of Matthews. And he says, well, how about I, local government, I get you $120 a day. See, they were able to set their own prices and they were just able to bid and win a contract for the right to open up a toll booth. And so the second Matthew gets the bid and says, you know what, I am going to get you $120 a day. So he gets the license, he goes and sets up this booth and he starts charging people who walk by or are trying to use the road or trying to use the market. And he some days makes $200, some days he makes $300, but he's able to just shave all of that off the top and pocket that because the government is getting their cut and he's getting his cut no matter what it may be. And, and you can see how that system might actually lead to a lot of corruption and a lot of uh, like repression of the poor, especially because if you're trying to move the one thing that you have to sell, if you're trying to move it to the market and you have to use the road, well, you're willing to pay pretty much whatever. And so these tax collectors were known for their ability to like squeeze every penny out of the people. In the Talmud, which is uh, an, a Jewish document from the same era as Jesus, uh, the tax collectors are referred to as robbers. The, the tax collectors were even, they were the, the victims of some, like, 
what we would think of in modern day as, as like terrorist attacks because they were seen as, as collaborators by some of the, the first century Jews. So because Matthew was a Jewish man, but he was working for the Roman oppressors and he was oppressing his own people, it's, it's very likely that he would have been seen as a traitor because he's extorting and squeezing pennies out of his own people. And it's possible, too, that he was seen even as ritually unclean because of his interaction with the Gentiles constantly and because of his uh, sin, just habitual sin. So picture that. Picture that man sitting in that booth and Jesus walking up to him. A man who is despised by his own people. A man who's thought of as a greedy robber and as a traitor. And Jesus walks up to him and he just says, follow me. What Matthew is describing in his own calling is really simple, but it's also really profound. Because with that backdrop, we see that the Messiah is coming to him and says, follow me, which is clearly a call to discipleship. It's a call to leave his way of life, to come and be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, to learn to teach like Jesus. And how does Matthew respond? Matthew got up and followed him. So it's really simple that we can actually miss it. But Matthew actually left his entire way of life in order to follow Jesus. Just like Peter and James and John had done when they left their nets, their, their family fishing business, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Just like that, Matthew left. But, but Matthew would have had a very lucrative business going on. And he just leaves the booth. And if you think about it, this action has a real like finality to it. One of the commentaries uh, that I read for this week says this tax collectors were usually wealthy men for there was ample scope for profit in their business so matthew was probably making a great material sacrifice when he walked out of that office and the action was final they would surely never take him back again if he later decided he wanted to return the fishermen might go back to their fishing but the tax collector would not be able to return to the levying of customs duties Anyway, his lucrative post would soon be filled. And if he tried to get another job, who would want to employ a former tax collector? This is the key part. Matthew's response indicated a thoroughgoing trust in Jesus. A thoroughgoing trust in Jesus. So we'll refer to, uh, return to this at the very end, but what I, I think is necessary to point out just as we look at this first verse what has Jesus called you to? Now, many of the times, especially in churches, when you hear the word call or you hear someone say, like, what has Jesus called you to? People immediately think of, well, uh, like moving to a foreign country or being a full-time missionary or like becoming a pastor or something. That is not at all what I mean. It, it might include those things, but what I'm, I'm really thinking about because Jesus calls people to that sort of stuff, but he also calls people to be teachers and doctors. He calls people to be husbands and wives. He calls people to be single. He calls people to have conversations with their coworkers. He calls people to help with set up and tear down. He got that plug. And he really, he actually calls us in the moment by moment. So what I really mean is what has Jesus told you to do? And as we read this passage, one of the things that I want us to see through this text is that Jesus still calls people. God still speaks. 
So we've been talking over the last several weeks through the, the prayer and prophecy series. We've talked a lot about this. But I know still there's some people who are thinking either I've never heard God before or I've heard him before but not just not in a really long time. So I've been involved in some sort of like church leadership for the last five years and I, I cannot count the amount of times that I've had that conversation. I feel like God's spoken to me before but I just don't feel like it anymore. What do I do with that? Well, one, I'll just say that's a normal part of the Christian life. There, there is an amazing podcast out there uh, by a guy named Mike Erie, who's a pastor now in Ohio, um, but it's, uh, the title of it is The Hiddenness of God. It, there's just a real normal part of the Christian life which is forcing us to actually press into God and, and forcing us to seek more, and, and I think it's actually a really beautiful thing. I can't explain it and can't go off on the full tangent today, but if you want to talk about that, we can. But my advice for you, if you feel like God has spoken to you before but hasn't spoken to you in a long time, my advice to you is to return to the last thing that he told you to do. And have you been obedient to it? Because many times when I have that conversation, there's this clear sense of God has asked me or told me to do this, sometimes even clearly in Scripture. There's this clear command or clear direct thing in Scripture and we've ignored it. And then we get frustrated because because it doesn't seem like God's speaking to us anymore. What I, would, what I would advise you is to go back to whatever that last command or last thing that you feel like God has said to you and just ask the question, have I been obedient to it? Have I been faithful what God has already entrusted to me? And if not, why not? Is the sacrifice too great? Is it going to cost me too much money? Is it, is it going to cost you your reputation? Is it going to cost you this sense that you have everything together? Is it going to make you uncomfortable? Let's learn from Matthew. Let's learn from this interaction. Because Jesus calls people from stuff and calls people to stuff. And many of us would theoretically would say, well, if I was sitting in that booth and Jesus walked up to me and he called me to, to leave everything and follow him, of course I would leave. Of course I would do that. But would you? Would I? Would we actually leave everything? Because if, if we're the type of people who really would do that, how are we responding to the things that God has called us to do in the here and now? I think we can learn from Matthew and this interaction. So if you look back down at the text and see what happens next, Matthew invites Jesus over for, for dinner. And look who's in attendance. So the disciples are there, but you also have the tax collectors and the sinners. And the language of this text actually uh, makes us think that it's some sort of celebration. It's like Matthew realizes what has just happened. He's like, you know what, I'm going to throw this big party at my house and invite all of my friends so that they can meet Jesus too. And so some cultural background is kind of helpful for this instance as well because don't think of your house and your Christmas party where you put like the Facebook RSVP and like nobody actually followed what they said on the RSVP. That happens all the time. It happens for like wedding invitations too. But don't think about that. And don't think about like a door and, and blinds where you can pull it shut and it's private. Because in the first century, a, an event like this would have been semi-public because it would have been outside in a courtyard. People didn't have gigantic houses that were that had heat. It was hot outside, so you just did everything outside. And normally what you would do if you were throwing a celebration like that is you would invite people that you could socially gain from. 
So you would invite influential people, you would invite important people, you would invite the types of people who you hoped that they would introduce you to their network. And the people that you hoped would then invite you back so that you who had, had spent all this money to have this meal, you hoped that they would then invite you to their even better party. But, but notice that it's not the people to socially gain from who are invited to this event. It's the tax collectors and the sinners. It's outcasts, it's outsiders, it's those who are considered far off by the religious establishment. And because this event is outside and it's sort of public, the Pharisees get wind of what's going on. So the Pharisees are this religious, these religious leaders. They're really considered to be the holy of the holy. They're really considered to be the righteous ones. And they say, hey, Jesus claims to be this religious leader and yet he is eating with these people. What, what is going on? By eating with them, it, it's like Jesus is refusing to just openly condemn them and, and to stand at a distance and say, you're wrong, change, and then maybe we can eat together. It, it's like Jesus is refusing to say that. It, it's instead like Jesus is willing to welcome them as the people who just come to him and they come to the banquet. And it's like Jesus isn't all that concerned about what the Pharisees think, but is really concerned about what his mission was and what he was sent by God to do. It says in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? How can your rabbi, a religious man, paraphrasing, how can a rabbi, a religious man, associate with these irreligious people? And Jesus responds with a humble illustration that I think is really, really helpful. He says, it's the sick, not the well, who need medical help. Now there's two parts here. The Pharisees would have undoubtedly seen themselves as the people who were well. They were the healthy people. And the rebuke inherent in Jesus' statement is, why are you healthy religious leaders, why are you doing nothing to help heal the sick? And why can you not see that the concern to help the sick is not to persuade them to continue in being sick? It's like rather than standing off at a distance and condemning and saying, oh gosh, like it's too bad that you're sick. I'm sorry you're sick, but you're sick. It's instead like, like Jesus is in the business of engaging sick people and healing sick people and persuading them not to continue to be sick. So there's a rebuke in that. There's also a second part. Jesus never said that the people in question were anything other than sinful. Jesus never said that the people were anything other than sinful. But that's not the point. That is absolutely not the point. The point is that it's precisely these types of people that Jesus came for. Jesus' image of a doctor and patients, it it allows him to begin with this agreement with the Pharisees' assessment that, hey, these people are sinful, but then to, to treat it with all seriousness and then to say, hey, I have an alternate vision for this. There's a different way to think about this. Maybe... We can see sinners as needy and able to be helped, this is the rebuke against the Pharisees, rather than as contaminated and people to be spurned. Okay? 
So there's something there to engage with instead of just point the finger at and say, you're wrong, change, and then you can come. So as we read this story, as people in a church, uh, we have to be able to see ourselves in need of both of those points. Because we, every single one of us, is in need of Jesus' healing. We are all sick in one sense of the word. We all have been, and, and in some way we all continue to, to disobey. We continue to have these, these uh, leftovers of, of a time when we were really sick that Jesus healed us from, but there's, there's a very real sense in which many of us continue in that, and so we need Jesus' healing. There may be some of you here this morning who feel like that sick person, who, especially when, when someone like me, like a pastor in a church or just church folk in general, some of you will, will think of, of yourself as that like traditionally outcast person. And, and the beautiful thing this morning is what Jesus is saying clearly through this passage and, and clearly through Matthew passing it along to us Jesus is saying, you are welcome at my table. You are absolutely welcome. Come be with me. I am not afraid of being with you. And I will heal you. Some of us this morning need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus came for the tax collectors and the sinners, for the traitors, for the greedy, for the robbers, for the people with notorious backgrounds, for the people who've committed that sin, whatever that might be in your head. And Jesus came for people like that. And if you can only think of yourself as the person who's uh, pretty healthy, pretty well off, not really in need of a doctor, well, then you've missed the point. And that's really the second part of where I think you and I need to get from Jesus. Because as Jesus rebukes the religious leaders, he's saying, rather than engaging with and participating in this healing work, you're standing at a distance and accusing and you're blaming, and you're saying, well, why are you accepting of those people? I think there's a lot there for us to learn as well. You and I need to hear Jesus' words loud and clear. Because imagine if Jesus came to Spokane today, and ask yourself, who would Jesus eat with? Who, along with his disciples, would Jesus be eating with? Now, I had to really pause and evaluate myself on this because as I'm asking these questions, I'm, I'm realizing that I am, am the chief offender in this area. I have neglected these things. I am not great at having dinner peop- with people who are unlike me or different than me or who think differently than me or who are traditionally feel rejected by the church. I am not good at that. But I want to follow Jesus in this. I want to have it happen more. But the reality is it is difficult. But I have to ask myself, what am I missing out on because I don't do that? How am I missing out on what Jesus is at work doing because I'm not actively participating in that? How am I loving my neighbors if, if, I, if I don't engage with them in that way? And what, am I, what, what spiritual discipline am I missing out on because I'm not doing the sorts of things that Jesus did? and laid out to us in this passage, this, this art of table fellowship. 
the art of eating with people, of communing together around a meal, and not just, it's not just eating a meal with people who are just like you. And so for me, what this means is that in 2018, this is on my goal list again. I think it's been on my goal list for like the last three years. And it will continue to be there until I feel like I've gotten this, this rhythm of life where I, can be, where I can say, hey, you know what? If you want to learn how to do this, come over to my house and see how it's done. But I, I, I can't do that yet. And so the reason that I'm sharing this is in part because I want us all to grow in that area. I want our, our, our missional communities to grow in this area. And I hope that you walk away from this going, yeah, I want to grow in that area too. But I'm also sharing this with you just to hold me accountable. Because now I've said it to like 65 or 70 people. And, and there's some responsibility that comes with that. And I start with that example, really, just to point out that I have not arrived yet. I don't have it all figured out. I can't say, hey, just come watch me do it. And, and I am uncomfortable reading this passage and all that it means. And for many of us, it's fair and right and just to be uncomfortable in reading this passage. One option that we have, I mean, really every, every time that we come to Scripture or or any time that we engage in prayer, or any time we engage with God in any way, we have the option to, to, to receive something or to hear from him and walk away and go, that's nice. And then turn around and, and leave that event or leave that day or leave that experience and, and not really consider it ever again. Be like, oh, that was, a, that was a cool thing. What I, w- what I would encourage you, what I, what I hope, is that that's not us. That we don't read a passage like this and be like, wow, it's cool that Jesus called Matthew and Jesus ate with sinners. I, I want us to be able to, to see ourselves in this passage and be like, wow, what does this actually mean for me in a day-to-day kind of world? We have to seriously consider and pray through and think through this morning, how does this story from Matthew affect your day-to-day life? So here's the, the two questions again. If Jesus were here today, who would he be eating with? If Jesus were here today, who would he be eating with? And if I'm not eating with his people or interacting with them or showing hospitality or showing value, etc., fill in the gaps, why not? That's the harder question. Is it because I'm too busy? Am I scared? Am I frustrated because I've tried it in the past and it really hasn't gone well or it's been uncomfortable? Uh, Is it because I think it's just not that important and that Jesus doesn't really care about those sorts of things? What is it? Most of us are really uncomfortable with this idea of like labeling a group of people sinners. Some of us do it privately and in our own hearts, but we're really uncomfortable with doing it publicly. Notice how Jesus describes sin in this passage. It's like a sickness. And the rebuke against the Pharisees is is that their approach to the people is condemnation and removal and to stand at a distance, to push people away. While Jesus models that his response to the sin in the world, both the sin in our own hearts and the sin everywhere else in the world, his response to that is to draw near. It's to be with. It's to be among. It's to be like a doctor who goes to work healing. So here's the reminder too. As you go about doing those sorts of things, it's not you doing the healing. If you start eating with people, it's not like all of a sudden you become the healer and you're, you're fixing people. That, that is not the way that it works. It's Jesus and the presence of Jesus 
in and through you sometimes that does the healing. But we can be like Matthew in this story with this fresh, obedient, excited faith and, and inviting people, in essence, to a meal to meet with Jesus. To have Jesus be among them, to introduce them to Jesus. Some of us, though, are still stuck in the tax booth, so to speak. The reality is that some of us have yet to respond to the calling of Jesus. And like I said before, that, that, that's a wide gamut of things. I don't just mean moving to a foreign country or moving to a new city or doing something like that. What, what I mean is it, just the simple commands on your life, on our lives. To love your neighbor, to pray for those who persecute you, to forgive, to serve, to outdo one another in showing honor, to not commit adultery, to honor your father and mother, to be free from that addiction to pornography. There's simple commands that many of us are just still stuck in that booth and still looking at Jesus calling us and just still sitting there and not responding. And there's some really, really concrete, straightforward things in Scripture that Jesus has called us to. And we routinely disobey them. And, and it, we're acting as if Jesus isn't right in front of us calling us with those things. The call to follow Jesus it is a call to love, it's a call to service, it's a call to self-abandonment, and it's a, call to so, self, to, it's a call to self-denial, and it's a call to obedience. It's a call to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow after Jesus, to come and learn to do the things that Jesus did, like eat with tax collectors and sinners, and to be his ambassadors, representing him in the world. So, as I'm saying those things, I know that for some of you, there is something in just naturally that comes to mind. There is something that comes to mind like, wow, is he talking about that? Fill in the blank. Rather than just push that aside and be like, wow, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to think about that. My hope is that this morning we can actually wrestle with those real life, real things that are really going on. So as we transition, or when we transition, uh, there's going to be people up front who are, who are available to pray with you, and that's an opportunity for you to come and just confess those things and say, you know what, I want to follow after Jesus. He's been calling me to this or that for, for a long amount of time, and I just want to respond. The beauty of everything that I've just said is, is captured in the table. Two tables. You are invited to the Lord's table. The reason that we take communion every single week is to keep this reality front and center in our minds. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus sat at a table and dined with them. And he invites you and me today, and really every day, and we remind ourselves of it every single week, that Jesus invites you to a meal with him. Jesus invites you to sit down with him and have a conversation about how your day was, about how your week was, about the Christmas upcoming and dealing with the in-laws. Jesus invites you to just come and sit at a table and dine with him. And we are reminded of that every time that we come. I mean, pause for a second and think about the reality of that, especially in the middle of Advent. God came to us and he invites us to eat with him to dine with him. And we have this promise of a future where we will get to sit at this, this huge cosmic celebration and eat with Jesus. 
It's an amazing promise. As we come to the tables this morning, I just want you to remember what Jesus said here at the end. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for people like me. Jesus came for people like you, who've missed it, who've messed up, who've gone our own way. Jesus called and came for precisely this kind of people. And what we realize as we come to the table week after week and remind ourselves of that truth, we see in reading stories like this and in participating in the table that we are actually called to do the same sorts of things that Jesus does and we are called to invite people to the table as well. So just as Jesus invites you to the table, he invites you to invite other people to his table. To just simply say, hey, you're invited to eat with Jesus. So as we come to the tables this morning, I want us to consider two questions. Just in prayer, as we sing in worship, as we come forward to the tables, uh, I want us to consider two questions. First, in addition to this table, what else is Jesus inviting you to? What else is Jesus calling you to? So he's clearly called you to the table. What else? And then second, who will you invite to your table? Acknowledging that it's difficult and hard and inconvenient. But that's the way of Jesus. If you'd pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning and give thanks for the reality of your invitation, for the fact that you have invited us to your table, that we, we have a place, we have a home because of you. And I pray for each and every one of my friends here this morning that you would do a work in our hearts to make us the type of people who do the same sorts of things that you did, who do the same works that you did, who, who teach the way that you did, who love people the way that you did, who think the way that you did, who serve the way that you did. God, I pray that you would do that work even this morning as we come and receive communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.